ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's probably not something you think about often or at all, but for the vast majority of Australia's population, supplemented fluoride is a part of the everyday diet. Since the 1950s, mandatory water fluoridation in most states and territories has played a crucial role in improving the public's dental health, but it's not been without controversy. Queensland lags behind the rest of the country with rates of fluoridation and dentists and doctors are calling on the state government to take the reins to reverse what they say is a health failure. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk country, Perth. This year marks the 70th anniversary of fluoride being first introduced to drinking water in Australia at Beaconsfield in Tasmania. Water fluoridation has been hailed as one of the 10 great public health achievements of the 20th century for reducing tooth decay. The Australian Dental Association of Queensland described fluoridation as one of the cornerstones of modern preventative dentistry. Around 90% of Australians drink fluoridated water, but that's not the case in Queensland, where more than a quarter of residents, mostly in regional areas, have no access to fluoridated water after decision-making on the divisive topic was handed to local councils a decade ago. Queensland dentists and doctors say it's a public health failure and the Palaszczuk government should mandate fluoride treatment. Emma Pollard has this story. In the 1960s and 70s, Australians had a rotten problem. Hardly a child of school going age has perfect teeth. Most large cities started topping up drinking supplies with fluoride. But that's not the case for more than a quarter of Queenslanders. It's a public health failure, according to dentist Dr Nora Ayad from the Australian Dental Association. We have studied water fluoridation for decades and the results cannot be questioned. At a population level and even at an individual patient level, we see a reduction in dental disease. Fluoride is a naturally occurring mineral that strengthens tooth enamel. It can be added to drinking water supplies and the National Health and Medical Research Council says water fluoridation reduces tooth decay by 26 to 44 percent, but it can be controversial. Some anti-fluoride campaigners have civil rights objections. Others say it lowers the IQ of children, a claim debunked by Australian research. We're talking about one part per million in a water supply. It's just not capable of causing the negative effects that people are concerned about, but we can absolutely see the health benefit of it. Queensland has a chequered history with fluoride. Town started adding it to water supplies in the mid-60s, more than 40 years before then-Labor Premier Anna Bly announced a statewide mandate in 2007. Our kids have the worst teeth in the country and we need to stop that. But her LNP successor Campbell Newman dumped the mandate and put the power to fluoridate in the hands of councils. Two-thirds of Queensland's local governments have since axed or avoided fluoridating water supplies. Lynn McLaughlin is the Mayor of the Burdekin Shire in the state's north and says expense is a major factor. The cost would be prohibitive, not only to instigate it and implement it, but the ongoing costs. Further north, the Cassowary Coast Mayor, Mark Nolan, says he recognises the oral health benefits but fears the anti-vaccine sentiment seen during COVID has deepened the distrust of fluoride. Council's been dealing with the uh, the lobby group around the anti-vaxxers and uh, time-wise, this would be a terrible time to try and 
enforce fluoride. While southeast Queensland residents have fluoridated water, 51 out of 77 Queensland councils do not. That includes the major regional centres of Bundaberg, Rockhampton, Mackay and Cairns, as well as almost all of the state's Aboriginal councils. Harvey Bay GP and AMA Queensland Vice President Dr Nick Yim lives in a region without fluoride. He says too many of his patients are suffering with decaying teeth. We would like to see the Queensland Government immediately return and mandate fluoridation in our water supplies. But a mandate appears unlikely. In a statement, the Queensland Health Minister Shannon Fentiman says while she wants to see more Queenslanders getting fluoridated water, the Palaszczuk Government is committed to local decision-making. Emma Pollard reporting there. You're listening to ABC Australia-Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company here on Australia-Wide. Having a baby can be the most joyful period of many parents' lives. That's definitely how parents are made to feel it should be, at any rate. But unfortunately, that's not the case for everyone. For many, the anxiety and loneliness of new parenthood can be overwhelming. But as the conversation around mental health continues to grow, support centres for parents, like the Gidget Foundation in Lismore, are opening their doors. On Bundjalung Country in Ballina, New South Wales, reporter Emma Hannigan looked at how the service is changing the lives of new parents. Caden Powell was expecting the joy and excitement he felt when his partner fell pregnant. What he wasn't prepared for were the more negative feelings it brought up for him. Those early days, once we found out, it was definitely exciting, but it's been very challenging and tricky and some things sort of came up for me in and around my own childhood with abandonment and stuff like that, which sort of triggered some of those old childhood wounds for me, which I had to sort of sit and deal with in around that mental health space and I felt a bit of shame and um, and guilt to feel those sort of feelings considering mum was the one who had the bub. Like many people, becoming a parent brought up unresolved issues but with the help of support services he was able to work through it. It gave me some cues in around my own self-care and the importance of looking after myself to then be able to um, provide and, and um, nurture my family in, in the process. The Gidget Foundation was set up by the family of a young mother who died by suicide while suffering postnatal depression. It's opened a free mental health support service for new and expectant parents in Lismore. CEO Arabella Gibson says the service is badly needed in regional and rural areas. We know that one in five mums and one in ten dads will experience perinatal depression and anxiety. That's 100,000 Australians every year and it just continues to compound. And We know that people living in regional, rural and remote areas um, are particularly inclined to have um, this as, a, as a, a more prominent illness than those even in city areas just due to the additional factors related to isolation, um, to a lack of privacy, to um, a lack of services. Um, and and many other aspects as well. New data from the Gidget Foundation shows 40% of parents in regional New South Wales prioritise their own needs last. Oh, look, it always comes back to that same thing about um, being on the plane where you put the uh, oxygen mask on yourself first. Um, And look, self-care can be absolutely critical because if you're not doing well, no one in the family unit will do well. Um, We know that this is a really recoverable illness and so that's why it's really important to start talking, to reach out, to communicate with your friends, your family and to really create that village around you. Creating that network transformed Caden's experience. Um, It it just helps give me a different perspective, you know. I think support, it, it gives me 
um, different, you know, um, different experiences, different knowledge that I might not necessarily have known prior to that. So I think information and knowledge is power, you know, and, and with that, it, it's helped me to to be able to see things differently, like I said, to then be able to hopefully cater and, and try different sort of things, you know, in a playful sort of way with, with my young ones. Minister for Mental Health Rose Jackson says services like this are critically important in rural and regional areas. There is a lot of superlatives in politics, but these services literally save lives, and particularly in rural and regional areas. So we know that um, perinatal mental health is a real issue for mums in particular, but also for dads. But overall, all mental health challenges are more significant in the regions. We know that. The statistics show us that regional communities are struggling particularly areas like Lismore, where there's been natural disasters um, on top of COVID, on top of cost of living. So I think these are incredibly important services and it's great to see more of them available. Northern Rivers parents will be able to access 10 free appointments with specialists in perinatal mental health. And what they'll do is they'll work with um, the person to support them in a way that will give them the tools and the coping mechanisms to manage um, the way they're feeling better and to work in with them holistically. So that might be working in with their partner, with their family unit, with their GP, with other services to ensure that they've got all of those um, aspects supported as, as well as possible. Rose Jackson says as a parent, she can attest the importance of the services. The big thing for me is just how hard it is to reach out for help because as a new mum, as a new parent, you're told this is the best time of your life, you must be so happy. How many times do we say that? And it's well-meaning, you must be so happy. But often they're not so happy. And when you're sort of faced with that barrage of this is so great, this is such a great time, pushing back and saying, I'm not feeling that, I'm struggling, I think is really hard. And so I know how much love and support people want to give you as a new parent, but that can often be a real barrier to starting that conversation about not feeling good. For Caden, the knowledge that he was not alone made all the difference. For me, I, I, I doubt myself, you know, just getting that reassurance. These are quite common sort of experiences and it's familiar. Just having that knowledge and being able to reassure myself that, you know, I'm doing the best that I can and taking the next right step and, you know, being able to experience them without thinking too much and experience just being present and enjoying that time with, you know, the young ones. So. Caden Powell, proud Wiradjuri dad living on Bundjalung country in Ballina, ending that report from Emma Hannigan. And if you or someone in your life is struggling, you can contact Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Historically, Indigenous people across the country have been left out of marine management. As high costs and heavy regulations have meant that only those able to pay top dollar have had access to the fishing industry. So in an attempt to close the gap, the New South Wales government announced last week that three Indigenous-owned corporations will receive a leg up into the seafood industry. From the south coast of New South Wales, reporter James Tugwell has this story. Ewan Man Wally Stewart has been fighting for 40 years to get his people a seat at the table of the commercial fishing industry on the New South Wales south coast. Well, they're our resources, you know, we never gave them away and then, um, you know, why can't we be part of this industry? Mr Stewart is a director of Junga Land and Water Aboriginal Corporation. And this week, he saw a major breakthrough. Junga was selected by the New South Wales government to create a strategy to launch a Wabunja Aboriginal fishing cooperative on the South Coast. For Mr Stewart, employing South Coast Indigenous people in the fishing industry is just logical. (laughs) 
South Coast people are, um, you know, we're um, coastal people. You know, thousands of years we've relied on our ocean and estuaries um, f- for food source. Our mob were taught to fish and to live, you know, and look after our ocean and our water. So it's um, where they want to be and where they want to work. For him, the establishment of the Walbunja Co-op is a righting of past wrongs and an end goal in a long fight for resources and recognition. We seem to miss out on the, you know, the commercial industry that fisheries came along and took away from us. And um, we've been getting a hide and, you know, flogging us for, you know, all the rules and regulations. But, you know, so we, you take that away from us, which, you know, we nearly severed our way of life because of the, you know, the rules and the regulations. You know, there's no other place in Australia that's had a massive fight like the Ewan people, you know, the South Coast people, when it comes to, um, you know, fighting for our resources and our, because it's not just our resources, it's our, it's our way of life. It's our culture way of life and it's been severed. So to have to, to be able to come into that industry and be legal and have a share of that industry is, um, you know, it's our people are excited about it. We want to be able to, you know, make a living off our resources as well, and also look after that resource. So for us, it's the end. It's you know, it's part of the end game. You know, we've always lived on the coast, and that's um, our traditional food. So that um, resource is very important to us. That's New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council Chair, Danny Chapman. And um, we think that we could um, contribute to um, New South Wales, Australia and probably the world if um, we sit down and work out um, ways in which um, Aboriginal people can get back into the industry and get um, involved in aquacultural activities. That would um, be a win-win for everyone in my view. However, Danny says more is needed to close the gap when it comes to the fishing industry. He wants to see fishing rights developed and a stop to the prosecution of Indigenous people practising cultural fishing. Those two things would significantly close um, some of the huge gaps that has appeared over the years. But um, that's one of the key things that um, we've been asking for. And thanks to our reporter James Tugwell with that story from the New South Wales South Coast. For any city, the prospect of hosting the Olympic Games is an incredibly exciting one. It's an opportunity to showcase everything great about a place, to really put a city on the world map. And for Brisbane, the 2032 Olympics have been touted as a game changer for southeast Queensland. But some in the regional Queensland city of Toowoomba are worried the planned upgrades to a local stadium in preparation for the Games will see sporting history bulldozed. Reporter Toby Loftus has the story. There's so much history here that it's not just a normal bowls club, like it's it's about 120 odd years old. Liz McCleary is showing me around the Toowoomba Bowls Club. There's pictures of horse and carts going down these streets with bowls, the bowls club here. She's angry. The club where she regularly plays faces an uncertain future. With many players anxious, the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games will force it to close. Because this isn't just a bowls club separate from Queen's Park, Toowoomba. This is part of the whole. And without it, it could change Toowoomba, always. If If they could tear down something that's as precious to the community as this... There's, uh, who knows what's next in line. Nestled on a block of land opposite Queen's Park, the club is on the site of the Queensland government-owned Toowoomba Sports Ground, home to the 2,500-seat Clive Burkhofer Stadium. That stadium is set to be upgraded so it can host preliminary football games as part of the Olympics.
The number of permanent seats is set to be doubled and an extra 10,000 temporary seats installed. It's those upgrades that has bowls players and club management worried. We've been given absolutely no information regarding our future. All we've been told is that we're part of a project validation report and we'll be just will be contacted and that's been ongoing for about 12 months now and they just won't tell us anything. Michael Hanna is the Bowls Club's treasurer. Uh, We're very fearful for the future of the club. There is a lot of members here that live in close proximity. We have one employee, is our greenkeeper. He's been here for about seven years now but the rest of the club is run purely on volunteers. There's a lot of history in this little club and it's going to be very disappointing if we're bulldozed for training sta- a training paddock or a car park or an office. He says next door is a tennis club and a croquet club, both just as historic as the bowls club and in a similar predicament. We have heard we have got a one-year lease renewal, I believe, at the moment. It rolls on to the 31st of December next year. But he says that's not how it used to operate. They'd give us three years at a time, but they wouldn't extend it past three years, even though we've been here for 120 more Earlier this month, staff from the Department of Tourism, Innovation and Sport undertook some geotechnical works and soil testing around the club as part of planning works for the stadium upgrade. For bowler Liz McCleary, the situation reminds her of what happened at East Brisbane State School, with the state government announcing after months of uncertainty it would be relocating that facility to make way for upgrades to the Gather. We've well, got generations that went to that school, the same as generations have been here. Look, we want to see investment in our region. We just want to get it right. And we want to, we want to be involved. Uh, we want our issues to be heard and our concerns addressed. Garth Hamilton is the federal LNP member for the seat of Groom. His electorate takes in Toowoomba. He says there are a number of other potential concerns about the project. And some of those are very legitimate concerns. We're talking about adequate parking. Uh, we're talking about traffic control during events, noise, dust, lighting and we're also talking about you know basic amenities availability of of water these are these are just very high level conversations that people immediately raise with you in a statement to the abc the department of state development says upgrades to the sport ground will ensure the site meets the needs of a growing community and has a way to continue to attract major events to the region long after 2032 They say a project validation report is underway, which will provide advice around the anticipated scope, social impacts and costs and risks. They say a geotechnical investigation has been completed, which will form part of the design options. And as part of that process, all stakeholders, including the club and the local council, will be consulted. Back on the green, player Mick Cherry says, like many, he's concerned about a potential closure. It's very, very sad to have... Uh, uncertainty about the future of a very important club. Management estimates a dozen people have already left the club over the uncertainty. Mick says if the club closes, it will be the end of his participation in the sport. No, this will be my last club. And, um, yeah, I'm enjoying it very much. So if the lease is not renewed, if the if the club has to shut down, that that's it for you playing? Yes, Robin Goulet is visiting Australia from Scotland. He says he wanted to play at an Australian club and after a bit of research decided to spend a few weeks at the Toowoomba Bowls Club. I think it was the history and the facilities and the fact that they made very clear that this is a community club and it's here to, to serve the community of Toowoomba. Um, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't for money making or everything, it's for people. Have you felt some uncertainty from 
the other players here and from the club about what they're going through at the moment in terms of their future? Yes, I have detected that. There is uh, there is a, a, a sadness and anxiety or apprehension about what the future is because this club has been here for over 100 years. The facilities are fantastic. That's Robin Gurley ending that report from Toby Loftus. And finally here on Australia Wide, iconic Australian hat maker Akubra announced yesterday that the business has been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Akubra has been run by the Kerr family for the last 147 years. Tina Quinn has this story. It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and prime ministers, and the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for, the fact these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in and Akubra is the way to do it. Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired Akubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876 and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair, Stephen Keir, said the decision to sell was a difficult one cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers. Um, the first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough. Uh, then it took off and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point and we can't get it further. And um, that's where we made the decision to look at our, where we can go, how we do it. And the world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia. So Tatarang will take that further and do that. My sisters and I have talked for a long time about um, where we can get this business to and we've, we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now and our forefathers have done a good job to where it is. But it needs more and um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs and um, Tatarang and the forests have proven um, what they've done with Aaron Williams. We've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time and um, it's just... The brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought, what does the brand need and what does the company need? And um, this is a decision we came to. And um, Mr Forrest has talked to me over the years. Andrew Digger. Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years. And um, he, his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs. Terence Hunt, a former Akubra employee of 53 years, told the ABC's Samantha Aisha that he has many fond memories from his time at the company. I started in 1961. I retired as the company secretary in 1995 and retired as a director in 2014. So what would you say would be the most rewarding time since your time at Akubra? There have been a couple of really good times. 1998 with the... Um, uh, centenary and the uh, Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, a dramatic increase in demand and we rose to the challenge, dropped off then since, but since then it's, it's picked up and with the last one I was involved, we were selling into 23 countries. 
bit large for a small Australian company. So how do you feel with the new ownership? Well, I was saying to somebody else, Charles Darwin never said the survival of the fittest. He said the survival of those who adapt fastest. And this generation has adapted to the situation they're in now. There's certainly Mr Forrest coming in with his assets that he got available to back the company to do more and bigger things. Have to applaud that. It's good thinking. It's advancing in Cuba. It's advancing in Australia. And what legacy do you hope that the company carries on? Um, looking after the employees, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers. And it's always been a family company. And that's been a very strong point. Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Akubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The Forrests announced they had separated this year, but continue to invest together through Tatarang. That was Tina Quinn with that report, and that is Australia-wide for this Monday evening. I'm Alex Harmon. I'll be back again with you tomorrow. I hope you can join me then. Have a wonderful evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.